0: Well, um, 75 years ago this year, in June 1944, British, American and Canadian soldiers made that journey across the English Channel to the beaches of Normandy in northern France to liberate Nazi-occupied Europe. That was D-Day. And it's estimated that on those D-Day beaches, around 10,000 Allied troops lost their lives. Can you get your head around that number for a moment? 10,000 Allied troops. And D-Day was the end of the Second World War, the First World War having ended only 26 years before it, in living memory of most people. And the First World War, of course, was supposed to be the war to end all wars. That was what they said. And yet it wasn't. And lessons were learned following the Second World War, and some of those were good. And yet, since 1945, when the Second World War ended, an estimated 250 wars have raged across the globe, costing the lives of an estimated 50 million people and that's a conservative estimate and today you only have to switch on the news to see across the Middle East parts of Africa and even now on Europe's own borders wars and conflicts and rumors of wars still abound. So the question that we have as the people of God when we gather together on a Sunday like this is what does the gospel of Jesus and what does the Bible have to say to a world still in the grip of conflict? And when we read the Old Testament of the Bible, one of the things that we learn about the turbulent and Quite terrifying history of Israel, there being the people of God, the Israelites, is that um, throughout all of these chapters that they went on, God continued to be with them, and yet their history was extremely tumultuous. It was really, really difficult. And you go through chapter after chapter in the books of. Exodus and Deuteronomy and so on and you see this outstanding and chaotic picture often of the people of Israel. Initially when they leave Egypt they are wandering nomads in the desert then the Lord gives them their own land the promised land Then they have it taken away from them, then they're taken into exile, then they return from exile, then they're invaded by foreign powers, and that ultimately culminates in the Roman Empire, which is when Jesus comes. And in the midst of all of this, God continues to speak to them through his prophets and tell them that hope is coming. He tells them consistently through the prophets in all of these circumstances that there is a rescue plan, that there is a plan that he has to redeem them and a saviour is going to come to deliver them. Now picture for a moment and try and put yourselves in the shoes of those Israelites throughout this history when everything around them feels chaotic and where there is war and where there is conflict and persecution and exile and slavery, often over multiple generations, being told, but God has a rescue plan. God has a plan to save. And God shows what it will be like when his perfect rule and his perfect reign will be established. And he speaks through the prophets about peace and justice for all the earth but you wonder to the average person what that must have felt like and how that must have been received. All of these prophetic words about peace and rescue and redemption, and yet the average person surely must have felt like there is a disconnect between that and reality and then what happens well we'll celebrate this in just a few weeks time when we get to advent and christmas in the most miraculous way god breaks into the human story in the person of jesus the most unlikely of ways a savior born in a cattle shed born in a in a backwater in roman occupied palestine A saviour who will grow up and ride on a donkey. A saviour who will grow up and be persecuted and eventually crucified. That is God's rescue plan. But you would be forgiven for thinking, wouldn't you, if you were awaiting that rescue plan, that God had gone awfully quiet... (coughs) that it was awfully silent, that maybe if he had a rescue plan at all, he was keeping it really, really well hidden, and maybe, just maybe, there was no plan at all, and this was all just wishful thinking. That's what you could conclude, but that isn't the Christian story. That isn't true. Last Sunday we began our new preaching series which is looking at this theme of the kingdom of God which we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God if you like. And we pray that every week when we come to the Lord's Prayer and say your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But you'll remember that last week one of the things that I said was There are two kingdoms operating in our world. There is the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of peace and of righteousness and of goodness and of hope, but there is also the kingdom of darkness. There is another kingdom. There is the kingdom that the Bible calls the kingdom of this world. There is the kingdom of the enemy. There is the kingdom of despair and of hopelessness. And you only have to switch on the news, actually, to see what the kingdom of this world looks like. Conflict and war and disagreement and betrayal and malice and anger. That is the kingdom of this world. But let's take a look at the first Bible passage that we had read to us from Isaiah. If you want to follow it, it's on page 687 in your Bibles. And this is what the Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah in verse 2 of chapter 2. The Lord says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord, the temple will be established as the highest of all mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Verse three, he, that is the Lord, will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And verse four, he will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. They will beat their swords into plowshares. Um, that phrase, they will beat their swords into plowshares, appears on the building of the United Nations headquarters in New York. That's the aspiration that the world would beat its swords into plowshares and no longer be at war. And it's an admirable aspiration, but it's never one that we've been able to fulfill. And so the question that we have today is, where do we put our hope Because if our hope is ultimately in human systems, be they the United Nations or anything else, or it's in NGOs, or it's in the human capacity for goodwill and good effort and good works, as important as all of those things may be, if our hope is in any of those things to bring about lasting peace and reconciliation, then we are going to be solely disappointed. Or is our hope in the King of Kings? Is our hope in the Lord of Lords? Is our hope in the Saviour of the world to establish a kingdom of peace and a kingdom of righteousness that no other human power could achieve? So where is your hope this morning? Where is your hope? It's a big question, isn't it? But I wonder if you ever thought about it. Do you have a tendency to put your hope in political solutions? Wow, aren't we in that kind of a world at the moment? So many competing voices. Where do you put your hope? We've got a general election coming up in a few weeks. Where do you cast your vote? I am genuinely asking myself that question at the moment. Where do you put your hope? Because the reality is that we are offered so many stories of hope from our world, and not one of them satisfies. Is your hope in human might or human willpower or our capacity to achieve great things? And there is no doubt that the human race has achieved great things in its history, for sure. Great innovations and great leaps forward. But is your hope really in the human capacity to change the world? Because as I see it, The human heart, the human propensity toward evil and destruction and pain, it ain't getting any better. So where's your hope? Maybe your hope is in scientific or technological advances. Maybe we can fix this problem of the the human heart by, uh, by science. Maybe we can solve it through technology. Maybe we can solve it artificially, as it were. But actually, everything would tell us that the problems of the human heart cannot be solved by human will. So in the Gospel reading that Joy brought to us, um, it's one of the most beautiful readings in Scripture, actually. This is the start of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever to have been preached in all of human history. And this is how Jesus chooses to start this long sermon, which touches on so many different themes, Jesus begins it this way in Matthew's gospel. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And verse after verse after verse, it goes on until we get to verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I don't know how you feel about that as an introduction to a sermon. You know, you might hear those verses and conclude, Jesus, this mighty rescuer, this one who's come to save the world, it's a bit of a wet way to start a sermon. You know, it's a little bit lackluster, it's a little bit wimpish, it's a little bit sort of fluffy, And if you were his PR agent and you were encouraging Jesus in how he might write his manifesto and how he might sort of launch his preaching ministry, you might encourage him to do that with fireworks or with some kind of, you know, something that grabbed the headlines or that was really bold. And yet he begins, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. Actually, if you concluded that Jesus lacked authority and lacked power, you'd be wrong because as Jesus went on to teach, one of the things that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, who didn't much like Jesus, it has to be said, said of him was, this man preaches as one with authority the authority of Jesus was really clearly recognized. Jesus was no wimp. Faced with corruption in the temple, Jesus went in and upturned the temple and said, this is to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of robbers. And then on the very last day, when Jesus was before his accusers and anyone else in that position, crucified for a crime they hadn't committed, would surely be shouting out curses and insults. What are some of the final words that Jesus breathes to his accusers? Father, forgive them. Can you imagine a strength and an authority like that? That's the true king. There's no one like him. There is no one like Jesus. Jesus who speaks and lives and acts and moves with such authority. The world just has nothing on that. There is nothing that any politician or leader or inventor or engineer or, you know, public figure, there is nobody who can even get close. There's a brilliant film that I watched a few years ago called Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know how many of you have seen it. It's a a Christian film. And uh, Hacksaw Ridge uh, centers on the life of uh, this one uh, American soldier during the Second World War. Uh, he's a Christian, he's a seventh-day Adventist, actually, and he lives in rural Virginia. and his name's Desmond. And uh, one of the things that marks Desmond out is that he is a pacifist, and he believes, because of his religious faith, that God has called him not to take up arms and not to fight. And uh, that's really difficult for him because Desmond lives in a very kind of macho society in Virginia, and his convictions um, really cost him. Well, when Japan bombs the American base at Pearl Harbor in 1941, America is dragged into the Second World War, and men are encouraged to sign up to the armed forces. And so Desmond enrolls as a medic, happy to serve, but he doesn't want to carry arms. And he is persecuted by his fellow soldiers for his conviction and for having the courage of his convictions that he will not carry weapons. And they throw every insult that you can possibly think at him. And then comes the climax of the story. So... um, his uh, his division are deployed to the Pacific to fight the Japanese on the island of Okinawa, and their job is to secure um, a, a quite a high and dangerous ridge and to defend it against the Japanese. That's where the film gets its name, Hacksaw Ridge. And early one morning, when they've just about sort of secured this ridge and their troops are in place, the Japanese launch a massive Counterattack, And it takes them completely off guard first thing in the morning. And scores of American soldiers are killed as the Japanese advance across this ridge. And those that do survive, including many of the tough guys in Des- Desmond's regiment, who had persecuted him previously, run for their lives and encourage him to do the same. Save yourself, get out while you can. But through the sound of gunfire, Desmond can pick out the groans and the cries of some of his comrades who've been badly injured and are still out there in the battlefield. And even as people are deserting, he runs back out into the field of fire and he finds one of his comrades as they are probably close to death had they not been rescued. And he picks them up and he hoists them over his shoulder and dodging bullets runs through the battlefield to the end of the ridge and using a bit of rope belays them down the ridge and to safety on the beach below. He then goes back and does the same thing again and again and again and by the end of the day it's estimated that he had saved about 75 soldiers who otherwise would have died. That is an amazing picture for us of how the kingdom of God operates, that actually Jesus comes and shows us true strength in humility, not in a macho attitude, but in humility and a willingness to lay down his life for us, that true love shows itself through sacrifice, And you know, in the world that we live in, which is just full of egos and strong men and all of this macho talk, the kingdom of God comes up against that and has a completely different story for us. It has a story about a king who emptied himself of everything that he was and everything that he had so that he could rescue us. A king who went even to death on a cross for you. And yet in doing so, Jesus wasn't weak because in doing so, Jesus defeated death. In doing so, Jesus gave us life. In doing so, Jesus will return one day as the judge of all the earth and every knee will bow, it says in scripture, and every tongue will confess, whether voluntarily or by compulsion, every soul will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and all the earth will proclaim him king. That is true strength. That is true authority. That is the king of kings and the Lord of lords that we worship this morning. So where's your hope? I wonder if your hope is in that king. I wonder if your hope is in that kingdom, in a world that's full of so many other voices, and particularly today. Where's your hope for the world? Let's pray.